Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. So I want you to think about something for a minute. I want you to go back in your mind's eye to all those Christmases that you've experienced in your life. I want you to think about the worst Christmas gift you've ever received. What is the worst Christmas gift you've ever received from someone? We've been talking a lot about some of the greatest Christmas gifts, but chances are you've also received some pretty awful gifts throughout the years. I was reading an online thread where people were sharing some of their stories about these kinds of gifts. Listen to some of these. Maybe you can relate. One person said this, one year my aunt gifted me a wooden playset. Recommended for ages two to four. I was 14. <laughs> Another lady said, One year I gave my then husband a $1,000 tag Hoyer watch. He gave me a $20 Walmart blender. We already had three blenders. Another said, My grandma bought me an ornament with the name Eric on it. My name is Morgan. How about this one? It says, my mom got me a car crash kit. It had a disposable camera for recording the scene, a form for both parties to fill out, a tape measure for measuring I don't know what, and some chalk for what I assume was for marking out where the dead bodies landed or something. <laughs> and then another said this, when I was eight or nine, my grandma gave me a Christmas ornament. It was a little stuffed cherub with pink cheeks and yarn hair. I cried because I had saved up my allowance to buy it for her the year before. <laughs> well, did you know that every person to be born has inherited an awful gift from a distant ancestor? It's the worst gift we could ever receive. It's one that most people don't even know they have, and it's a gift that carries with it deadly consequences. And the gift I'm talking about is the one that the man Adam passed on to us. It's the gift of a sinful nature. So today, on our third Sunday of Advent, we're continuing our series called The Gifts of Christmas, where we've been looking at all of the incredible gifts that God has given to us in Christ. We started off by looking at the gift of Jesus himself, right? Jesus is the big gift. He's the ultimate gift. And when you, uh, it's kind of like those gifts where like, you get a big gift and then you open it and then inside there there's another gift and then you open that, there's another gift in there. That's kind of like, like the same idea here. Right? Jesus is the big gift. He's the ultimate gift. But when you unwrap that gift, there's so many other amazing gifts that come with, along with Jesus. So, so all of God's Christmas presents are wrapped in Jesus. And last week we learned about the gift of salvation, that Jesus made possible. But that's not the only other gift that comes wrapped in Christ. There are so many more. And the one that we're going to look at today is the gift of righteousness. 
the gift of righteousness. Now, to truly appreciate and understand this gift, we have to view it in light of, of the sin and the judgment and the condemnation that we've inherited from Adam. So our text, our primary text for this morning is Romans chapter 5, verse 17. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, to really grasp what's being said here, we need to understand the overall context. So in the second half of Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul tells all of Earth's people uh, that, that they could be categorized into two separate groups. One group he identifies as those who are in Adam, and the other group he identifies as those who are in Christ. And he's painting for us this, this heavenly perspective that there really are only two human races that occupy the Earth. There's the fallen sinful race that was birthed out of the loins of Adam. And then there's the spiritually regenerate race that comes from the redemption in Christ Jesus. To quote Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said this. He said, the whole story of the human race can be summed up in terms of what has happened because of Adam and what has happened and will yet happen because of Jesus Christ. So in verse 17, you can see this contrast here. Paul's talking about the one man who sinned, referring to Adam, and the one man, Jesus Christ. So, so these are polar opposites. And there are two universal truths that I want to draw out and expand on a bit from uh, this verse. The first truth is a, is a very gloomy one, um, but we need to understand the gloomy side before we could really appreciate the glorious side. So here's the first truth. It's, that, it's this, in Adam, we received a sinful nature that resulted in death. In Adam, we received a sinful nature that resulted in death. Paul says that because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. And the man he's referring to is the first human in history, Adam. In other words, Adam gifted us with sinful corruption. He gifted us with sinful corruption. See, when you open up the Bible to its first book, the book of Genesis, and, and you, you then start reading about all of the, the, the glorious and magnificent accounts of creation in those first two chapters in Genesis 1 and 2. You see God creating everything good, everything beautiful, everything completely uh, untainted by any kind of spiritual or, or moral ugliness. And then you get to the next chapter, Genesis chapter 3, and you read about our common ancestors, Adam and Eve, and you read about their rebellion against God. And that's what we refer to as the fall. That early event in human history is what we call the fall. So then Genesis 3 and the rest of scripture go on to show that the catastrophic effects of the fall. As a result of their disobedience to God, Adam and Eve were given a death sentence. This sentence was executed immediately in spiritual death and eventually in physical death. And in this catastrophic moment, all of humanity was affected because this one event gave birth to sin. This infestation and this unwanted gift of sinful corruption has been passed down to the entire human race as a result of the one man's disobedience. And this is what we call original sin. Original sin. And as a result of sin, every area of life, every part of human nature has been thoroughly corrupted. Instead of loving God and finding complete satisfaction in him like we were originally designed to do, we now instinctively love darkness and we seek satisfaction from the finite 
and temporary things that, that might look good, that might feel good, but that aren't actually good. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. He says this, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they all have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. In his uh, book, New Systematic Theology of the Christian Faith, Robert Raymond uh, wrote this about the effects of the fall. He said, humanity's understanding is darkened. His mind is at enmity with God. His will to act is slave to his darkened understanding and rebellious mind. His heart is corrupt. His emotions are perverted. His affections naturally gravitate to that which is evil and ungodly. His conscience is untrustworthy and his body is subject to mortality. All of that, getting the point of cross, that we have all sinned. We're sinners. That's what Paul says in Romans 3.23. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, this term sin isn't a word that we hear a whole lot about in our society. It's becoming less and less popular to hear that word. You know, it's kind of becoming one of those phrases, one of those words that you hear maybe from the preacher on Sunday or when you're reading your Bible or in a Bible study. But sin simply means missing the mark of God's standard. That's a simple definition of sin, missing the mark of God's standard. And there are so many different expressions of sin. All right, so, so one, you can think of sin as defilement. Right? Sin is defilement. Sin is to the soul what scars are to a beautiful face, what a bloodstain is to, to white, pure silk. It's ugliness across the face of beauty. We can also think of sin as unrighteousness. It's a, a rebellion against God's law. It's a rebellion against God's character. It's a deliberate neglect of his will. And you can think of sin as idolatry. It's a, a matter of, of finding meaning and purpose in our, in our own lives apart from God, right? Worshiping uh, God's substitutes instead of worshiping God himself. Now, it shouldn't require a whole lot of convincing to see that sin is a universal uh, enemy, Sin is a universal enemy. The evidence is overwhelming. Right? We see the proof of sin on the outside. We, we see it all the time. Everywhere we look, there's evidence upon evidence that sin is a very real and very damaging thing. Right? From wars, abortions, and sex trafficking, to greed and injustice and racism. Right? So we see it everywhere in the adult world. But it's not just in the adult world. We see it in the worlds of our children as well. It's just as evident in them. See, Laura and I need to teach Olivia and Elizabeth how to do everything. We need to teach them how to dress, how to behave, how to brush their teeth, how to clean their rooms, how to be kind, how to love others, how to serve Jesus. But you know the one thing we don't have to teach them, how to sin. All the parents should say amen to that. In the early 1900s, the Minnesota Crime Commission released a crime report, and it's amazing to read such a, a clear statement of original sin that originated from a secular government agency. In studying humanity, the commission came to this conclusion. They said this, Every baby starts life as a little savage. <laughs> oh, it gets better. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toy, his uncle's watch. Deny him these wants and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. 
He is dirty. He has no morals, no knowledge, no skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in the self-centered world of his infancy, given free reign to his impulsive actions to satisfy his wants, every child would grow up a criminal, a thief, a killer, a rapist. That's from a secular organization. See, the proof of sin is evident on the outside. But that's not all. The proof of sin is just as obvious on the inside. If we're truly self-aware and if we're honest with ourselves to any degree, we know that sin has corrupted us at the deepest level of our hearts and minds. Right? Those lustful thoughts, those self-serving urges, those deceitful impulses that if we acted on them would destroy our marriages, would destroy our families, would destroy our reputations, would destroy our careers, maybe even our lives. As one writer put it, they said, there is no man on earth who, if his secret thoughts were fully exposed, would not deserve hanging 10 times in his lifetime. And to that I say only 10 times. So no matter how you slice it, no matter how you try to make sense of it, the evidence is overwhelming that humans are sinful. There really is no way to explain the world apart from the reality of, of sin infecting the bloodline of humanity's DNA. So one aspect of Adam's gift to us was sinful corruption. But it actually gets even worse because there's an even deeper spiritual reality than our bent toward corruption. Another aspect of Adam's gift is sinful condemnation. He gifted us with sinful condemnation. So whereas our sinful corruption has to do with the sinful nature that we inherited that inclines us to reject God and impels us to embrace sin, our sinful condemnation has to do with the fact that apart from Christ, we are guilty, we stand guilty before our just and holy God, deserving only eternal separation from him. So let's now turn back to Romans 5 to understand this. Romans 5, verse 12. Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay, so we understand that sin originated with Adam and his sin led to death, but notice the last part of this verse. It says, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, Paul isn't repeating himself by saying that all people are sinners. He's already established that fact. He's not saying that here that people commit sins, even though that's obviously true. What he's saying is he's telling us that Adam, as the progenitor of the human race, represented all of us when he was in the garden. So, so his sin and guilt was imputed to us. It was charged to our account. Now, the tense of the verb sinned here um, is that of a, a completed past action, meaning that when Adam sinned, God considered it true that all of us sinned in him. And all, all people were guilty in him. When he sinned, we sinned in Adam. When he fell, we fell in him. When he got the death penalty, we got the death penalty in him. And Paul goes on and makes this even clearer in verse 19. Romans 5.19, he says, For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So we were made sinners because of the sin of Adam. In the eyes of God, Adam was given the authority to act on behalf of the entire human race. Adam was driving the bus of humanity, and when he drove the bus off the cliff, we all went with him. When he crashed, we all went up in flames. We are corrupt by our very nature, and we're condemned 
to death in our guilt. Because we received from Adam a sinful nature and because we received from him a guilty verdict in God's divine courtroom, we experience that death to the deepest degree possible. We experience spiritual death, physical death, even eternal death. Because of our guilt, we stand under God's judgment and condemnation and deserve nothing more than everlasting separation from him. Now maybe it doesn't seem entirely fair that God would impute Adam's sin and guilt to us. But keep in mind that even if he didn't, our own individual sins would condemn us as it is. Besides, if God didn't view us based on our relationship to the one man, Adam, then it logically follows that God wouldn't view us based on our relationship to the one man, Jesus Christ. But thank God that he does. Listen to how Warren Wearsby puts it in his commentary on Romans. He says, was it fair for God to condemn the whole world just because of one man's disobedience? The answer, of course, is that it was not only fair, but it was also wise and gracious. To begin with, if God had tested each human being individually, the result would have been the same, disobedience. But even more important, by condemning the human race through one man, Adam, God was then able to save the human race through one man, Jesus Christ. Each of us is racially united to Adam so that his deed affects us. The fallen angels cannot be saved because they are not a race. They sinned individually and were judged individually. There can be no representative to take their judgment for them and save them. But because you and I were lost in Adam, our racial head, we can be saved in Christ, the head of the new creation. God's plan was both gracious and wise. So are you seeing how dark and depressing the situation really is for those who are in Adam? I'm not trying to be hellfire and brimstone, but I am trying to communicate the truth of our predicament that God's word doesn't shy away from. In short, we're doomed by our sins, we're deserving of death, and we're destined for hell. In Adam, we received a sinful nature that resulted in death, and it's against this dark, gloomy backdrop of sinful reality that we really begin to see just how marvelous the light of Jesus really is. So whereas in Adam, we received a sinful nature that resulted in death, here's a glorious second truth. In Christ, we receive a righteous nature that reigns in life. In Christ, we receive a righteous nature that reigns in life. Look again at verse 17. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. See, the past couple weeks, we learned that anyone who believes in Jesus will not perish. They won't be condemned. They're not guilty. Instead, they receive eternal life. It's by the abundant grace of God that we're saved through faith in Jesus. And just as the entire human race fell through the one representative, Adam, so a new human race is being redeemed through Jesus, an even greater representative. The only way we can go from being someone who is in Adam to being someone who is in Christ is by faith in the Lord Jesus. That's the only way. In that moment that we place our faith in Christ, God undoes in us and for us everything that Adam did on our behalf. And so much more. That's why he says, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. Now this phrase here, the free gift of righteousness, that's another way of speaking about our justification. 
And justification is, is a theological term, and it's the word we use to communicate um, the legal act of God, whereby he declares a person innocent and righteous. Now, the same way that God in his divine courtroom declared us guilty in Adam, the moment we trust in Jesus, God declares us not only innocent of the charges of Adam, but he declares us righteous because of Christ. And to grasp how all this works, we need to understand what Jesus did for us and in us. So here's the first thing we need to understand is Jesus gifted us with the death of our old nature. Jesus gifted us with the death of our old nature. Listen to how it's, uh, Romans 6.6 6 puts it. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. See, when we think about what happened on the cross outside Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago, our mind's eye um, always pictures Jesus up on that cross, and as it should, because that's obviously what happened. But what we don't usually think about is the fact that when we receive Jesus by faith as our Lord and Savior, God no longer views us uh, in Adam, with Adam in the garden. Instead, God views us with Jesus on the cross. So when it says that our old self was crucified with Jesus, it's saying that our sinful nature given to us in Adam was nailed to the cross on Calvary. As the representative of a new, redeemed race of humanity, Jesus took you up on the cross with him. Jesus took me up on the cross with him. And that's true of every single person who follows Jesus as Lord and Savior. In fact, this is one of the reasons why you won't hear from this pulpit that popular phrase, um, we're sinners saved by grace. Because that's a statement of identity saying we are sinners saved by grace. Someone who is in Christ, though, does not have the identity of a sinner. We were sinners in Adam, but we are no longer. The sinner in me, my old man, the one I inherited from Adam that cut me off to God, was crucified with Christ. My old nature is dead to God. So what are some of the implications of the death of our old nature? Well, first, because we died with Christ, we've been liberated from the grip of sin. Because we died with Christ, we've been liberated from the grip of sin. Look again at what Romans 6.6 6 says. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with Jesus. For what purpose? In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Our old man in all of its sinful self was brought to nothing. The same way a dead boss no longer has power or authority over you, so sin no longer has power or authority over you. Now, does this mean that you won't sin after you get saved or that you're expected to never sin? No. But what it does mean is that when we do sin, when we do fall short, it's not a result of the sinful nature in us. It's a result of us as saints willfully choosing to allow a foreign invader to call the shots. I love how Charles Spurgeon put it. He said this about saints. He said, evil enters us now as an interloper and a stranger and works sad havoc, but it does not abide in us upon the throne. It is an alien and despised and no more honored and delighted in. We are dead to the reigning power of sin. We've been liberated from the grip of sin. And the second implication then of the death 
of our old nature is that we've been liberated from the guilt of sin. We've been liberated from the guilt of sin. See, a guilty sinner faces condemnation. Right? That's the natural end for, for a sinner who's guilty, condemnation. But that's not true for those who are in Christ. Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans 8.1. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Since God the Father doesn't condemn Jesus, neither is God the Father going to condemn those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We are not condemned, we will not be condemned, and we cannot be condemned. If we are one with Jesus, that means he's our head, he's our perfect representative. Right? You can't acquit the head and then condemn the hand. You, you can't drown the foot as long as the head is out of water. That's not how it works. If you're in Christ, here is your verdict. No condemnation. There's a story told of a young girl and her father who went camping in a forest. And suddenly they were surrounded by a flash fire that was blazing. And they ran one way, then they ran another, and then the father, looking a little bit in the distance, saw a meadow that had already been burned. So they ran into the middle of that meadow. And the father crouched down over his daughter as the smoke and embers went overhead. And the little girl asked, Daddy, are we going to die? And the father responded, no, we're not, honey. We're standing where the fire has already burned. See, when we enter into Christ, we enter into the one place where the fire of God's wrath has already burned. God's judgment against sin was vented in full fury upon Jesus at the cross, and it will not pass that way again. That means there's no need to live your life in fear. There's no need to believe the lie of guilt. There's no need to walk around in shame. You are secure in Christ and you're embraced by the Father as his very own. He will never leave you on your own. He will never forsake you by turning his back on you. And he won't undo in you and for you the work that Christ began. Jesus gifted you with the death of your old nature. And because your old nature has died, you've been liberated from the guilt and grip of sin. And not only did Jesus give to us the death of our old nature, but here's another thing he did for us, in us. Jesus gifted us with the life of his own nature. He gifted us with the life of his own nature. See, God didn't just cancel out our own nature and leave us uh, in a place of neutral standing. That's not what he did. He also gave to us the very righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. This is how 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The same way that Adam's sin was imputed or accredited to our old self, now God imputes the very righteousness of Jesus himself to us. In the, in the divine courtroom of God, he credits the perfect obedient life of Christ to our account. Everything that's true of Jesus then becomes true of us. When Jesus obeyed the Father perfectly, we obeyed the Father perfectly in Christ. When Jesus died, we died with him in Christ. When he was buried, we were buried with him. When he was raised to life, we were raised to new life in him. So then what are some of the implications of having the righteousness of Jesus? How should this affect the way we think? How should this affect the way we live? Well, for one, we need to realize that having the righteousness of Jesus, having the life of Jesus completely changes our identity. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are a new creation in Jesus. You're no longer a condemned sinner. That was your old identity. You're now a righteous saint. That is your new identity. That is how God sees you. You might not see yourself this way, but that's how God sees you. And if that's how God sees you, then it must be true. That's why the New Testament refers to believers as saints over 50 times. Paul doesn't write to the churches and say to the sinners who are in Ephesus. No, it's to the saints who are in Ephesus. That's your identity. Live out of that. So what else is true of you? We'll look at the beginning of Romans chapter 5. Verse 1, Paul writes this, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, there's that word, justification, right? Our declared righteousness before God. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So justification brings peace with God. It ends our hostility with God and it reconciles us to him. We don't have to strive to somehow gain peace and acceptance with God. His peace is already ours and we have it for the rest of our lives. We don't make peace with God. That's not how that works. I read about an older saint who was dying and this older saint was visited by a friend who asked him, have you made your peace with God? And the old man responded and said, no, I haven't. His friend said, what? You must make peace with God. To which the dying believer said, sorry, that's something I cannot do. The friend said, but you must. Don't you know that it's dangerous to die without making peace with God? Then the dying believer said, but how could I make peace with God? My Lord made peace with me 2,000 years ago when he died on the cross and I accepted it. I have been enjoying that peace ever since. See, we cannot make peace with God. He makes peace with us. What an incredible gift that is. Not only do we have peace with God, another benefit is that we have access to God. Look at the very next verse in Romans 5, verse 2. It says, through him, through Jesus, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So through Jesus, we have direct access to the Father. And the word access here carries the idea of, of being able to enter into the presence of the King. There's a story about a little boy who once stood outside the gates of Buckingham Palace in London. He wanted to talk to the king, but he was sternly turned away by some of the guards at the gate. As he stood there crying, a well-dressed man approached him and asked the little boy the reason behind his tears, asked him why he was so upset. And the little boy told the man his whole story, and when he heard the reason why the boy was crying, he smiled at the little boy, and he said, here, hold my hand, I'll get you in. You don't worry about any of those soldiers, son. So the little boy took the stranger's hand, and together they approached the gate. When the soldiers saw them coming, they all snapped to attention, and they opened wide the gate for this stranger and this little boy to enter. So the little boy was led through the gate, he was led across the courtyard, down some carpeted hallways and through open doors until finally he was brought into the very presence of the king himself. So what got him there? See, that little boy was holding the right hand. That kind stranger was none other than the Prince of Wales, the king's own son. 
See, as those in Christ, we have direct access to God the Father. Amen? We have direct access to the God of the universe who delights in us. And look at what else verse 2 says. He says, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now the word stand here means to be firmly fixed and immovable. It means that the righteousness that God declared of us cannot be moved. It cannot be undone. It cannot be unraveled. Our position in Christ has been settled and it's been established by God so we can be confident that he'll keep us entirely and eternally secure. We don't keep ourselves saved. It was God's grace that saved us. It's his grace that that sustains us and keeps us. After all, if the highest court of heaven, the highest court in the universe has declared that you are justified, what other court can overturn that verdict? The righteousness that Jesus gives us is an everlasting righteousness. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon wrote. He said, saints are so righteous in Jesus Christ that they are more righteous than Adam was before he fell. For he had but a creature righteousness, and they have the righteousness of the creator. He had a righteousness which he lost, but believers have a righteousness they can never lose, an everlasting righteousness. We have peace with God, we have direct access to God, and we are secure in God. But wait, there's more. Look at what Paul says in verses 3 and 4. He says, not only that... But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So another blessing of this justification is the ability to rejoice in trials. We no longer need to worry about every trouble or tribulation that comes our way, no matter how small or how big. Why? Because we know now that God is using those sufferings to mold us into the image and likeness of Jesus. Right? The same way that intense pressure Uh, turns coals into diamonds. God uses the pressures in your life to force out those independent, self-sufficient tendencies of your flesh and to reveal more of the image of Christ in you. Are you seeing just how amazing this gift of Jesus really is? He gifted to us the very righteousness, the very life of his own nature. And now we have peace with God. We have access to God. We are secure in him. And we can know with confidence that every trial, every tribulation that comes our way is being used by God to purify our faith, to develop our character, and to foster our dependence on him. Can you see how being in Christ is so much better than being in Adam? Infinitely better. Here's the bottom line. Because of Jesus, we can live a life of victory. Because of Jesus, we can live a life of victory. Jesus gives to you every resource that you need to reign victoriously in life. In Christ, you stand completely forgiven by God. You no longer have to live your life with the burden of debt hanging over you. You no longer have to live your life with fear and anxiety, wondering when God is going to come foreclose on that debt. The debt has been paid and God has credited you with the very righteousness of Jesus himself. That's what it means to reign in life. 
In Christ, you've gained back so much more than what Adam lost. You've been reconciled to God and now you live in vital union with him. You can have victory over the sin that's wreaking havoc in your life and in your relationships. You have access to God's power to overcome the destructive forces of your controlling habits. You have freedom from the shameful memories and sorrowful mistakes of your past. You have hope for all of life, even in the face of death itself. You have the guarantee of eternal life with God. In Christ, you have inner peace and strength and security and rest and joy. That's what it means to reign in life. In Christ, you have a brand new identity. You can no longer trace your lineage all the way back to Adam. Your lineage now goes right back to Christ himself. You no longer belong to the kingdom of Adam a kingdom that's marked by the reign of sin and death. You now belong to the kingdom of Jesus, a kingdom that's marked by the reign of righteousness and life. That's what it means to reign in life. Because of Jesus, you can live a life of victory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful, so grateful. Lord, what incredible gifts you've given to us freely. Lord, and what an incredible thought, thinking that you didn't even have to do any of that. Lord, and even if you did all of that for one person, that would be eternally more than we deserve, Lord, but that you're calling an entire race of humanity to be in Christ, a new race. Lord, we are so grateful for that. We are so grateful of the reality of of our justification and the fact that when you do justify us, you place us in Christ. Everything that was true of him is true of us. Lord, thank you for seeing us um, the way you see your son. We don't even see ourselves that way. Lord, help us to see ourselves the way you see us. Change our thinking. Lord, change our, our actions that are born out of um, that kind of faulty thinking. Lord, help us to, to see ourselves the way you see us. God, thank you for all the gifts that are ours in Christ. And Lord, for those, if there's anybody in this room who um, would still identify as being belonging to the, the race um, in Adam, God, I pray that even in the stillness and, and quiet of these moments, Lord, that by faith they would receive everything Christ did on their behalf. And Lord, thank you that Jesus didn't stay on that cross. That he was resurrected and that we share in that resurrection. That you've given us new life now and that, that new life will carry on into eternity. For anybody yet to take hold of that, Lord, I pray that even right now they would, they would call out to Jesus, to save them, to be the savior from their sin and the leader for their life. Lord, help us all to take hold of the fact that we are new creations in Jesus. Lord, thank you for that day when death was arrested and when our new life began. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name, all God's people said, 